Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddy. This week, we continue our series on the Gospel of John. Enjoy. He was a Pharisee, right? A member of the Sanhedrin, right? Which was the ruling council of, of Jews. And that was like the Supreme Court of Judaism, if you want to think of it that way. Um, it was 70 members strong, and it was a very learned group. This was a, the, these people were people who knew their Old Testament, and plus they also were, had jurisdiction. So they had some authority behind them. And we remember from the Gospels that most of us might remember when Jesus was arrested, he was taken before the Sanhedrin. So there, in order for there to be a judgment against Jesus and a condemnation that then they would send to Pilate, he had to go before the Sanhedrin. So this was a bit, this was a big thing. And so Nicodemus is part of that, a very learned guy, somebody who really knew his, uh, his scriptures. And so he's struggling in his encounter with Jesus. He's struggling with the whole question of how does one become a part of and, and is welcomed into the kingdom of God? Now, we remember from last week when we talked about uh, the beliefs of the Pharisees um, that the Pharisees themselves, because they were so oriented to the Old Testament law, that their belief was, was that the way that one enters into the kingdom and becomes a part of the kingdom is through a, a rather legalistic perspective. In other words, that if somebody would obey God's law perfectly to the, to the letter of the law, not just the spirit of the law, then that would usher in the messianic kingdom. Then that person and all of, of uh, Judaism would become part, would be part of the kingdom at, in terms of the, the Messiah coming. So, so they were very focused not only on their own obedience to the law, but of course then everybody else's as well. And that's part of why when Jesus came onto the scene, you can see where there was this little contingent of uh, Pharisee spies that would be following Jesus wherever he went to make sure that not only is Jesus and his disciples following the law, but then because Jesus was influential, the thought was, we don't want Jesus leading others to, uh, to uh, disobey the law, or at least not to uh, uh, see it as an important thing. So he comes to, he comes to Jesus and he says, a rabbi, we know that you are a teacher coming from God because nobody can do the signs that you're doing unless God is with him. And then Jesus's response is truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above or, or has this rebirth, he cannot participate in, or he cannot be a part of the kingdom of God. And so that's part of this conversation that now is going on between Jesus and Nicodemus. When Jesus said that, that you have to be born again, what was Nicodemus's response? He went into a human logic perspective, right, which is what he would have done, and certainly from an Old Testament perspective, but, but he was a very logical guy. He said, well, how, how can that happen? You know, what do you mean rebirth? What do you mean born again? Can a person enter a second time into the womb and be born? 
And that's then part of this conversation uh, between him and uh, Jesus. So we pick it up in verse 9, and we look at verses 9 to 11. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So Jesus now is, is pushing the limits, I think, of Nicodemus's logical approach to understanding spiritual things. And so one of the things I want to do in our lesson for today is to have you think about what is the relationship of human logic to matters of faith and spirituality? Can they coexist together? Or are they mutually exclusive of each other? And in, in other words, in order to have faith, you have to, you have to get rid of logic, right? Or if you have human logic to the nth degree, does that get in the way of faith? Is there a way for them to work together? That's what I'd like to have you uh, think about. And so when, when you look at Nicodemus, and later we're going to see this in John 4, when uh, Jesus encounters the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, she's going to struggle with exactly almost the same question in terms of how do I make sense of what God is saying to me in his word and how does that conflict or how does it uh, go together with, uh, with human logic? So think in terms of that last part there where Jesus says, but you do not receive our testimony. What can get in the way of accepting, maybe is a good word. He uses the word receiving. That's a good word to use. But what can get in the way of grasping onto spiritual things? Have you thought about that? Like we get in our own way. Pardon? Yeah. We get in our own way. In other words, we always want to feel something, touch something, see something before we really believe. So you're saying that it's kind of human nature, or are you only, Marv, speaking for yourself in this situation? Oh, speaking for yourself, okay. But, I mean, yeah, I think it's human nature. Human nature. And going back to my, my meager opinion, it's somewhat mutually exclusive as far as how faith and our own emotions can get in the way. Yeah. As you were earlier, I think it's somewhat mutually. It's so hard to talk to somebody, as you've mentioned before, about, especially when you talk college kids. Mm -hmm. And they're intellect can get in the way. Sure. Especially their influence with teachers and yeah. professors. Yeah. So what you're saying, though, is that a way that we get in our own way yes. is that, to some degree, our brains are finite. We're, how, how do you grasp the greater things of God? How, how, do you, how do you put all that together when the way that God works... It, it goes beyond our capacity, and it seems counterintuitive, maybe like is what Nicodemus you're saying. Was doing. Pardon? Just like, Nicodemus Just like Nicodemus was doing. Yeah, exactly. And we all sort of ask that same question, how can these things be? Have you ever caught yourself, oh, Marge, so lovely to see you. 
I just didn't even see you walk in. I have to do this right oh, here. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is a very non-logical moment, by the way, here. This is so good to see you. Yeah, good to see you, Gretchen. How are you? Good. All right. Let's see. Where are we? All right. So, so sometimes we get in our own way, and then we don't realize that we're getting in our own way. And we somehow, Bob and I were talking about this before class, we somehow end up trying to diminish God by putting him in the box that we can comprehend. And the problem is, if I'm able to do that, put God in such a, in such a place where, okay, I get him now, right? I understand him totally, then he isn't much of a God, is he? And so the issue is, how do you put the two of those together, that human limitation with the greatness of God? Now, in terms of Nicodemus's struggle, he was also coming out of an orientation of believing that what you do, how you live your life, the works that you achieve, the, the performance level that you have, makes a difference in terms of your relationship with God. And what I want you to think about is how logical that is, right? From a human perspective, shouldn't the goodness of what you do with your life count for something? I'm going to have a little coffee while you ponder that one. Shouldn't it? Yeah. I mean, isn't that how it is in school? If you work hard and, and, and you, you pass and you get all the grades and all those kinds of things, shouldn't that count for something? Doesn't your class ranking go higher? What about in work? Right? If you perform, if you deliver, shouldn't you be rewarded in some way? I mean, most of us would say absolutely that's the way it is and that's the way it ought to be. I mean, how many of us, getting real honest here, feel good about the idea that you would do all the work and somebody else would get all the benefit? Hmm? Hmm? None of us feels good about that. And to some degree, that's the struggle we sometimes have with God. Because what God does in his grace is he says, it's wonderful that you do all those things, but it doesn't count for anything. And in fact, my grace and my generosity is open to everyone, irrespective of how much or how little they've done. And you could have somebody who lives their life only dedicated to themselves their whole life and then come up to the very last second of breath of living and that person turn it around and repent and come to faith and what will God do? He welcomes that person into the kingdom and that just frosts every one of us <laughs> who have spent our whole lives trying to be the good people, right? And we're probably standing there at the gates and we're keeping a little tab on who comes in and we're thinking, uh, excuse me, but that guy waited. That doesn't make any sense. And that's the part of faith and spirituality where it kind of takes it beyond what we can understand. Okay, I had a couple questions. Yeah, Bob. You know, I would just like to turn that around and say, God does all the work. And we get the benefit. That's exactly right. Which is just the opposite of what we want. That's exactly, see, because that's not logical, right? From our standpoint. No, well, yeah, from our standpoint, absolutely. And that's the struggle, right? Somebody else had that. Carl, you had your hand up? No? Okay. 
right. Oh, I answered your question before you asked it. Okay, good. That happens every once in a while. All right, well, let's keep on going. All right, verse 12. Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, Jesus references an actual story, an actual account from the Old Testament in the book of Numbers as he's talking about the parallel between uh, uh, an event that happened in Israel's life as they were crossing the wilderness and and then paralleling that with uh, Jesus's life. So we look at Numbers 21, 4 to 9. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. What was the food, by the way? Manna. Yeah. Every day the same thing, right? Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten. And when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. What do you make of that story? I took a long time to make the bronze. Pardon? I think I'd have anxiety when I made that bronze statue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because like how long did it take to do that, you know? Yeah, so that's one aspect of that. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, Mary Jo. It's a foreshadowing of Christ on the cross. Yeah, and that's what Jesus points back to. As the, as the serpent was lifted up on the pole, so the Son of Man is lifted up on a pole, so to speak, on the, on the cross. And then whoever believed at the moment that... What was the evidence of the belief in the, uh, in the Numbers account? If you believed, and the, but how did, how did you know... Well, not how did you know, but what was the expression of the faith... In, in, the, uh, in the numbers account. Whoever did what? Whoever looked at it, right, and believed, it was look and believe, then even if you were bit, then you would still, you would still live, right? So the same thing with Jesus as in terms of not looking upon the cross necessarily, but certainly believing in what, uh, in what Jesus uh, was about. The, the, the interesting aspect of this for me is did everybody get bit? It doesn't, it, it's hard to say, isn't it? And, and, and it sort of raises the question, if you were among the whiners and the complainers, right, then the chances are pretty good that you got bit. But it doesn't really necessarily distinguish between those who got bit and maybe those who didn't. And maybe everybody got bit. Is there a possibility that every guy, everybody got bit? And if that's the case, so much for saving faith. 
What about the smart person who got out of there? Well, we've all been built. Yeah, there might have been some smart people that hooked him out of there. Yeah, do what? We've all been built. We've all been that is inter- that's an interesting aspect of this, isn't it? Is that saving faith does not necessarily prevent you from getting bitten in life. Does it? No, it doesn't. But the difference between getting bitten in life and living versus dying, even if we're talking in a proverbial way, is faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus doesn't stop bad things from happening. It doesn't stop you from doing stupid stuff (laughs) to yourself. It doesn't stop us from doing that. We wish it would. Sometimes it does maybe in a limited way. But even if the cause of your own demise is yourself, what does faith do? Points me to Jesus. Yeah. Question over here. Okay. Yeah, Max. Yeah. So, so the, the, the snake on the pole, the, it represents complete and ultimate trust in God. You know, and the same thing when you see Jesus on the cross, you have, he wants you to have complete and ultimate trust in him to guide your life. That's correct. That's what he's drawn us to all the time. Yeah. His point so is trust in him, not our 401k or, you know, our, you know, Yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of those things where when you get bit by a snake, anybody ever got bit by a snake, by the way? Anybody ever had that before? Yeah. Anybody ever had a nightmare about getting bit by a snake? Yeah. Okay. Well, okay. So when you get bit by a snake, like they're talking about here, these would have been poisonous snakes. This wasn't some little grass thing or something. Okay. And it actually says serpent. So I don't know if it's a kimono dragon or, you know, exactly what it is. I don't know. But in that moment, do you really care about your 401k? Do you really care about, you know, oh, gee, I don't think I did the oil change in the car. Do you really think about that stuff? No. What are you thinking about? Life or death. And when your arm or your leg is swelling up and you see the redness of it working its way up your body, the only thing on your mind at that moment is am I going to die or how do I live? And when it comes down to it, Jesus' coming is all about that. Now again, when we get bit about different things in life, we don't necessarily always immediately see poison creeping its way up to to our heart or to our brain. Sometimes we get bit by things in life that uh, seem to be uh, almost innocuous. It almost seems like there's nothing there. We think, oh, not a big deal. But that's, I love your point, Max, is that um, Jesus continually points us back to himself. That at the end of the day, the ultimate security that we have is in Christ. It isn't in everything else. Everything else is nice, but that's not going to be the essence of, of life and death. Okay? Any other thoughts? At this point, good to see the Nowaks here. You guys have finally uh, moved back to the DFW. Oh, well, we're so glad to see you guys, and I hope you're doing very well. This is kind of a national hug day, so we're just going to kind of, kind of do it that way. All right, well, let's go to verse, uh, uh, verse 16 and following. Really, some fantastic verses here that, that many of us and maybe, oh, Sandy, you had your hand up before. Oh, you were talking about did everybody die when they were bitten? Right. Did everybody get bitten? Right. And it says so that the people of Israel got 
so many mm -hmm. people of Israel died. Yeah. So there is no definitive answer. That's right. That's right. It just sort of suggests that um, that when the serpents went out, they were rather indiscriminate about who they were going after. It doesn't really suggest that if those who had faith or were not complaining, all right? And so that's the other part to that, is that when the Bible talks about the idea that they spoke against God and against Moses, this wasn't like they're having a little pity party. This isn't like, you know, oh, I'm so hungry and I'm mad at you. That is not what it is. That was a moment of rejection. That was a moment of disbelief. And the accusation was, and this was very common, I think, for a lot of the people. The accusation was, was that here we've run out of food and we had it so great in Egypt. Remember that part of the story? You know, uh, it was terrible in Egypt, but the, but the one thing they did have in Egypt was predictability, right? And here they are out in the wilderness having to kind of sort of fend for themselves and trust totally in God. And uh, so that was, that was a big part of that complaint. Okay, now let's go to John three sixteen and following. Jesus says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. So God so loved the world. The Greek word there is the word, you probably have heard this word before, agape, okay? Or agape o is the uh, Greek word, a word for unconditionally loving something or someone. So it's, it's love without a pre-existing pre uh, uh, tendency of that person toward you. It's an unmerited, unconditional kind of loving. It's a love that places no conditions on someone. In, in other words, saying, well, in order for me to love you, you have to do this first, right? You have to be a good person. You have to obey the law, whatever it might be. And so what we're told is that God's natural posture toward the world is to love the world. Now, here's the dilemma. If you look at it from a human logic perspective... Because from a human logic perspective, the inevitable question is, and I wrote it down, how can such an unconditionally loving God be at the same time a God that judges sin and condemns people to hell? Would not the world be automatically saved simply by virtue of God's loving it? Does that make sense? And that's the question or a major question that many people are asking today. They're willing perhaps to concede the possibility that God is a loving God. And so the question is, then why doesn't his love trump everything? See, why do we need to have a Jesus? Why isn't just love enough, right? Yeah. Just like you do with your children. I love my children, but... I can't necessarily stop them from doing something wrong just with that love. It's human choice. You still have 
their human choice. I can love them as much as their thing. I can do as much as I can for them. But if they go off track, I can't. I can't prevent it. You can't prevent them. You can't. But their going off track does not stop you from loving them, right? And so the struggle for a lot of people is, is that if you love your child who is a sinner, if you love your child who is a sinner, then why does, why do you have to believe in Jesus? Why can't it just be enough that you love your child? Why did Jesus have to come in order for salvation to be received, why isn't it enough just that God loves the whole world? And we could all become universalists and we could say, well, all roads lead to heaven because all, it's, all, it's, it's, it's the same God by many different names and that God loves people and that should be enough. That's the struggle. Yeah. Well, God does love everybody, but not everybody loves God. Not everybody loves God. That's an interesting twist. Yeah. So even if people don't love God, shouldn't God's love be enough to save them if he really loves them? Not if they reject Jesus. Oh, there we go. Why did Jesus have to come if God loves the world? Carl. Well, just, just like the analogy of the, the parent loving their child, sooner or later if the child continues to reject and go their own way, the parent has to have tough love and let them go. And if you look at Romans, it talks about, Paul talks about the fact that God loves us so much, but he sooner or later gives us over to our own way when we reject him. And but so he still loves us. But he still loves us. Yes. And it's the hard, you know, hurt, most hurtful thing for him to have to cast us out. So you still got, see, we still have the dilemma here is why, it, why did Jesus have to come? Why isn't God's love by itself enough? Why does Jesus have to be part of this? Yeah, Bob. Is God good? That's a question. Oh. <laughs> God is good. Then God has to be just. Yeah. Because if he is unjust, he is not good. And to forgive in God's perspective, in God's logic, Sin results in death, mm -hmm. and God has to judge to be good. Yeah. Without his judgment and wrath, which we do not like to talk about, right. he cannot be good. So he couldn't be a good God. He could be an all-loving God, but he would be an unjust God. Yeah. The dilemma of God's loving us is what, is he, what do you do with sin then? Do you just blow it off and say, well, that's the way people are, <laughs> okay? That's one approach that many people have towards sin. Other people have the approach towards sin, which basically says that it's really not sin. It was sin in the days of the Old Testament, but it's not sin today because we know way more today about people than we did then. That's one approach that people take, which basically still is the, the, the issue is sin is still present, whether you define it away or not. All right? Yeah. Still go back to the accountability. God put Jesus out there, but we still have individual choices to make. And we can, to your analogy of the children, we can do everything we can, whether they are toddlers, infants, or, or 40. But at the end of the day, that individual must make an individual choice. And yeah. I think that's part of the salvation. 
plan. It's not just granted. You have to choose. Yeah. There, I think today, because people struggle with the idea of, in addition to God being the loving father, he's also a judge, a just judge, right? And so because of the fact that uh, sin is present in people, what is God to do with that part of it? See, what, does a what is a judge to do with the fact that someone comes before him, a magistrate, and stands there guilty of, of the sin or guilty of the wrongdoing? What's the judge to do? In order to keep his own integrity and to keep his own sense of who he is, he has to act on it. And so the problem is that the scriptures present us as sinners unable to change ourselves, right? Unable to stop ourselves from that which is our very nature, the sinful nature. So it goes back to the original question that I asked is, why is Jesus and his coming the absolute expression of God's loving? Because that's what John says. That's what Jesus says in John. Remember, we go back to it. For God so loved the world. See, that's, that's, that's unequivocal. That is without question. For God so loved the world. And in his love, what did he do? He gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You see, Jesus is the integral part of that equation. And the reason he is, is because people are sinners and somehow Jesus was and is the answer to sin as well as the remedy of love. So why Jesus? Why not John Schweitzer? I give you a lot of reasons. <laughs> <laughs> or why not any of us? Why not maybe pick out the best, the goodest, I love that word, the goodest person you can think of in the history of the world or just in your own life? Why not that person? What, what makes Jesus unique and distinctive that it absolutely had to be Jesus and it couldn't be anybody else? Because he's the only one that's God-man. See, he's the only one that's born into the world without sinful nature. He's the only one that is divine and human. He's the only one that could live truly a perfect life unstained by anything. And then he's the only one that is the true and adequate sacrifice for sin up on the cross. And yet up on the cross wasn't enough, was it, to complete the task? The resurrection is what completed the task. See? So the point is, is that even though it may sound in the world's mind and the world's ears, it may sound very exclusivistic to say that the, the way that sinful people connect with God and have that, the assurance of eternal life is through Christ. That sounds very like, oh, that's very exclusive. You Christians are saying that it is only through Jesus that you can get to heaven. And we would say, yeah, because that's what the Bible says. That's what Jesus says, and he's saying it right here. Well, that sounds very unfair. What about all the people that never heard about Jesus? What about people that were raised in a certain religion where, you know, okay, it could have been Jesus, but it could have been many others as well because they're all really good people and they teach good wisdom for living. 
What about those people? Does that question, do you ever get that question? Does it trouble you? Troubles me. I get it a lot. Doesn't make it bad, just stirs me. Yeah. Well, the world has really come to a full circle where they, even his own people, the Jews, were trusting in their works, in their sacrifices. And he kept saying, I don't need your sacrifice. And he finally had to say, here's a final sacrifice. It's over. Yeah. Given the final sacrifice. Yeah. And I've proven who he is by his resurrection. I don't need your sacrifice. That's right. I need your love. Yeah. And he's been telling them all that all along. You go back to his relationship with Abraham and the covenant. Mm-hmm. Abraham is, being, is said to be saved by his faith. Yeah. Just as we are today. It, it's such, but it's so counterintuitive. It, it just is, because it's so more, it, it, it makes more sense to think in terms of that what I do should count for something, that I should be able to get higher on the list if I'm a good person. You know, it just makes sense that way. And yet then God comes to me in the form of grace and says, well, it isn't about what you did. It's about what Jesus did for you. What? That's so hard for human uh, from a logical perspective to grab onto. Dennis, you had your hand up earlier. You know, I'm on a kind of a roll here. Don't you notice that? I'll just, you raise your hand and I'll skip over you and say something. And then we don't even have to deal with it. That's very, I love that. All right. I love that. Yeah. Teasing. All right. So does God condemn people and send them to hell? And if so, how could a loving God do that? That's the other thing people want to know today. How could a loving God condemn people to hell and send them to this terrible place? What does Jesus say in John's words here? Jesus says they condemned themselves already. That's correct. Do you pick up on that? Do you see that again? That's where's that at? Verse uh, 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Why? Because his sacrifice did it all for us. That's why we're not condemned. But what if I make the decision to say, I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to receive that. That that cannot be. Then he says that person is condemned already by the choice that they made. And the choice that they made is to not believe in the name of the only Son of God. Now, here's the deal. If I'm at a point in my life where I'm not believing that, I stand in condemnation. Does that mean that I'm now doomed to hell? I made the choice. I said, I'm not believing. This just can't be, I'm not believing. So here I am not believing right here. I stand in the state of condemnation because I'm not believing. Am I doomed to hell? If you die in that state, you have condemned yourself. That's correct. And what if, like, I have this moment of the heart and I can feel my life ebbing out of me and I do a reversal and it's a genuine reversal. God who is faithful and just will (laughs) forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's right. 
We've used kind of the, the analogy of parenting here, and I think in some sense the prodigal son story just absolutely blows this away in a really wonderful and special way. Because in the prodigal son story, the youngest guy left, right? He left. Now, what about the older one? The older one left without leaving. Did you notice that? Yeah, he was kind of all operating off of the uh, wrong motives as well. But the issue is not in the story is not so much the focus on the two brothers, but on the what? The love of the father. So the father was loving his son, even though he let him go. And yet every day was what? Waiting for the son to come back. And even the son, the older son that was, you know, ticked off because the brother's getting all the glory now. What does the, what does the father do with, in relation to the older brother? He goes out and seeks him out. You see, the essence of God's love, even in the face of people that would reject him. And that's what's so amazing about this is that very first phrase, for God so loved the world, the, 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 the term or the, the word world in John's gospel is, is not just in terms of like the earth and the universe. It is the, the, the nature of people, the nature of the world to be a rejecting body toward him. The word world is not used in the gospel of John in a very complimentary way. And so what he's saying is the very people that would reject him, he loved. That's a pretty awesome thing, all right? And so, see, that's the point in terms of why Jesus had, Jesus was the only one that could be the one that would, would uh, satisfy, if you will, the dilemma of the combination of God's love as well as the dilemma of human sin. All right, you with me still so far? Okay, nobody's left yet. That's good. All right, so let's go to verse 19. He says, and this is judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, we talked a little bit earlier about this idea that God presents himself in the scripture, both as a loving father and also the just judge. And that really comes into play here in verse 19, where this particular translation says, this is the judgment. But actually, the Greek word there means a verdict, the, the way that a judge would pronounce the verdict, okay, guilty or innocent in the sense of a, of a court. And so he says, this is the verdict. The verdict is the light has come into the world. The problem is what? People by nature don't want to have anything to do with the light. And in fact, what he's saying is that people love the darkness. Guess what that word love there is in the original language? It's agape. It's the same word that he uses in John 3, 16, where he says, God so loved the world, that unconditional love. And what he's saying is, is that God has unconditional love for us, but we by nature have unconditional love for what? Darkness. Darkness in John has to do with sin. It has to do with, uh, 
with turning uh, uh, into ourselves. And so it says people loved unconditionally the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because our works are evil. How many of you in the last week did some nice things? Only got 10 of you raised your hand. Holy cow. 10 out of 50. Yeah. You did some nice things. Like what was one of the nice things that uh, one of you or some of you did? What was a nice thing? You cooked dinner for the Lermans. That was a nice thing. Very nice. Yeah. Was it evil? Oh, it was really good. (laughs) It was good food. That was very nice. Okay. What are some nice things? Yeah, Marge. Gretchen did something nice for you. That was very nice. Good. Way to go, Gretchen. What else? I prayed for one of our members who's got cancer and having a hard time right now. That was a very nice thing to do. Yeah. So what do you make of this where it says, people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil? Was it? Dark. Are you trying to hide it? Yeah. Have you noticed? You're in the dark. You're yeah, see, one of the things that, one of the aspects of darkness is, and what makes it so attractive, is that you can get away with stuff. When it's in the darkness, you can hide, well, of course, we think we can. Yes, that's right. Yes, when I was a kid, I used to think, well, I, I used to think this, and then my dad told me one time that God was watching me. <laughs> And that made me very aware of, gosh, like everything, like, well, gosh, what if I'm in the bathroom or something? Is he watching me? I mean, you know, these are the kinds of things that, that a PK would think about, right? Yeah, really important things like that. So anyway, uh, that, that made an impression on me, all right? But he says here, for everyone who does wicked things. Now, in the original language, it, the, the word wicked there also can mean worthless, so it's not necessarily making a moral judgment on something in terms of whether it's wicked or evil versus good. He's just saying it, he's also saying that it could in fact be just be something that's mindless. It could be something that is of no value or of no worth. So everybody who does those things, what? Hates the light. Does the world hate Jesus today? It sure does. See, the way that Jesus looks at this in terms of the word is that either you're for me or you're against me. And so many people today are kind of on the fence with that. Well, I don't hate. I don't exactly accept, but I don't hate. I'm kind of ambivalent. I'm kind of indifferent. I'm kind of searching. I'm kind of, I'm trying to find my way is what a lot of people will say today. Jesus makes a stronger distinction there, right? That I might be leaning, but but because of my sinful nature, that's going to take me away from Jesus in a powerful way that maybe when even I think I'm on the fence, I'm actually leaning away from him. Yeah. Say that louder, please. Without repentance, you're wicked. Without Without repentance, yeah. Yeah. And so that reminds us, kind of, kind of puts us in our place, doesn't it, a little bit? Yeah. If, you're, if you don't strive to do what is, in, what, what is good in God's eyes, 
that you choose to live the life of <coughs> so you don't think you're evil, you are, because you know God. So what is good in God's eyes? Love. Loving each other. There's a lot of non-Christians that love each other. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What's good in God's eyes? Faith in Jesus is good. Yeah. See, sometimes we struggle with, and the world certainly does too, in terms of looking at the, the, the civic goodness of someone, right? And concluding from someone's civic goodness that that equals the same as spiritual goodness in the sense of faith in Jesus. That's what's, that's what's so hard for the world. The world looks at goodness and says, well, if anybody would make it to heaven, that guy would, because look how good a life is that he has led. And publicly and civically, it's true. It's somebody who's uh, very philanthropic, somebody who, who does good for others, somebody who's, who's, who can be counted on constantly in, in, in a social good. But the, but the conclusion that we often draw is because it's good publicly or because it's good in terms of the way the world would look at it, that somehow then that's the same as being good in God's eyes. And the problem with it is, is still the problem of sin is that without faith in Jesus and being covered in the forgiveness that Christ offers, as opposed to rejecting that covering, I can do all the good I want in the world, but without faith, it doesn't please God. Yeah, Keith. Well, the question is, about God is, he is righteous. In order to be with God, you have to be righteous. The only way to get righteous is through Jesus. Yeah, because we're covered with the righteousness of Christ in us. Yeah, exactly. All right. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. You know, that in our, li- in our world today is not always clearly seen. It is not always clearly seen. So at the end of the day, the assurance that we have that it is clearly seen is that it is clearly seen by God, even if the people around you think otherwise. Okay, guess what? We have broken the world record of lessons here. Like we're done with like 12 minutes to go. I, I just don't even know what to do with myself at this point, right? Does anybody have a question that we can stretch out all the way to the end here? Yeah, oh, Richard, thank goodness, yes. A comment, a comment even worse. Yes. <laughs> no, you said it bothers you when people uh, talk about what if they didn't hear about Jesus? Yeah, that's a question that agitates my heart. Okay. It does, yeah. Well, they used to agitate my heart also. Mm-hmm. But this is kind of the way I, I see it. Mm-hmm. Some people that throw that up at you, are really only trying to distract you from the real issue, mm-hmm. their okay. decision. And then the second part is, and I don't remember which psalm it is, but the psalm talks about God testifies to himself in nature. Yeah. And I think that that's what gives me peace about that, mm-hmm. because it is distressing, you know, because we, we don't know the answer. Well, I think that maybe I'm confusing you all a little bit when I say it agitates me in the sense that 
it would keep me motivated to share the gospel. It would keep me motivated to uh, support mission work. See, because if I, if, if I conclude in that question that there's some other way for someone who was raised out of the Christian understanding of things, if there's some other way for that person to, to acquire salvation, then why would we support mission work? See, why, why would we share the gospel? Well, we would need to because there is some other way, right? But as far as I know, in terms of the way that the scriptures have revealed themselves, the only way is through Christ. And so because to my knowledge, I don't believe that God uses angels to get that message out to people. He uses people to get that message out to people. Then where is my responsibility as a Christian and your responsibility as a Christian to support that or to actively engage in sharing the gospel with other people so that that word doesn't just stop with you, but the word goes out. And so that's when I say agitate, that's kind of what I'm talking about is it, it scares me a little bit because it might mean that I might have to be one of the ones that would have to share that gospel, you know, for an introverted turtle kind of person, that's kind of scary, right? But, you know, that's kind of what you do. That's what you have to do. So that's what, that's what I'm talking about when I say that. Yeah. Yeah, John. Well, and, and in Romans, Paul talks about this. And, you know, he says that God reveals himself through nature, mm-hmm. through everything he has created. So creation itself testifies to God. And therefore, mankind, man has no excuse. That's correct. <laughs> but you keep wondering sometimes about these isolated colonies. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Or even if you think about our own uh, Native Americans right. saw nature, but they attributed almost mm-hmm. idols, right? Gods. It, and, and really, you don't even have to go that far. You can drive 45 minutes to the west to downtown Fort Worth. And up on the banners in downtown Fort Worth, the National Association of Atheists, the NAAA, has put up banners that say, in no God we trust. And they plastered them all over Fort Worth. And holy cow, you would think that we, the crusades are starting again, let me tell you, because the people that getting riled up about it, but, you know, again, according to the way that Fort Worth does its uh, policies about such things, uh, it was all entirely legal for them to do that. They may be the last religious group to uh, get an ch- opportunity to do that. So, so the idea of somebody totally rejecting the existence of God and ignoring uh, what God has created in creation, you, we don't have to go very far to, uh, to find that, right? Yeah. In early service, one of the hymns is the, the who will go, send me, send Oh, yes, yeah, send me, send me. And the words of that hymn mm-hmm. are really, really profound. Yes, yes, that's right. They speak to us. Yes. And they remind us that the way the word gets out is from human to human. See? Yes, God could have done it like with angels and just sort of put that in everybody's heart that they would know and we wouldn't have to talk about it. But nope, that isn't how he decided to do it. Okay. Any other thoughts or questions this morning? Good stuff this morning. All right. Let's uh, let's close our prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our time together. We thank you for the, the great dilemma, Lord, of your love. 
It is, it is so magnificent to love that it loves the world and it loves us in spite of the fact that by nature we do not love you back. It is not our nature to do that. But you, Lord, had a plan, and your plan was to send your son Jesus to be our Savior, to live a perfect life for us, to suffer and die as a sacrifice and be raised again on the third day, that the payment of our sin was complete and it is found in Jesus. So many people today have accepted that and received that in faith, dear Lord, and yet there are so many who have not. And so, dear Lord, as we uh, think about our lesson this morning, we're reminded of the fact that we have this great news and we have the opportunity in our families, we have the opportunity among our, our uh, co-workers, among the people that we fellowship with, that we play with, and the people that we live with. We have the opportunity to share that good news with them. So, dear Lord, as we are challenged to do that each and every day, pray that you bless that and pray that you encourage us to, uh, to do more of that. Watch over us this week, dear Lord, as uh, we uh, stay close to you until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.